Okie doke, Vaughn. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, so like Jay said, I have a, an undergrad degree in psychology, and I'm currently doing a PhD in psychology and religion in Cambridge. And um, for those of you who are interested, my topic is on anger at God. So if you have issues with God, or you're angry at Him, or whatever, you can come and talk to me afterwards. But that's not what I'm going to talk about um, right now. I'm going to actually first present some psycholo psychological research on the self that may be relevant um, and helpful to our understanding of grace. So please bear with me um, as I start with a couple of psychological ideas. And I don't want to burden you with jargon, so I'm going to try to brush through that as quickly as I can and give you, you know, what you need to work with. Um, and uh, like Dave said, this, the handouts, I'm sorry they're not enough, but um, they will be available online and I think later. So one way in which psychologists have conceptualized and studied the self is through self-schemas. Schemas are kind of um, cognitive structures or filters that um, are created through past experiences. And they're filters that help us organize the experiences that we have. They guide processing of self-relevant information. And self-schemas include knowledge that are about the self that are relatively stable over time. So personality attributes, physical attributes, skills, ability, or occupation, and, and hobbies, and so on. So they're basically sort of structures through which are all our experiences, and all, all that we experience, all that we see, hear, smell, you know, deal with people, they're all filtered through these kind of structures. And they're um, sort of cognitive, oh, this, this handout is not printed very well, sorry, I don't know how to do it. So they're generalizations about the self, derived from past experience. So, um, so some of my self-schemas are um, psychologists, that's one way in which I sort of assess information around me through that filter. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. Um, I am pretty, uh, uh, I think I'm pretty smart, so that's one of the, you know, not to put my own horn, but you know, smart is one of the self-schemas that people have. Um, and to be schematic for a certain trait, as opposed to aschematic, is for a person to consider themselves on either extremes of that trait and to consider that trait as personally relevant and important. So um, research has found that, has, has explored how schemas influence how people process information. Relative to aschematic, people who are schematic for a particular trait or dimension are faster to make judgments about information relative, relevant to that dimension. They can more easily remember behavioral evidence in support of that self, that self trait or self descriptiveness of that dimension. They're more likely to predict predict future behavior consistent with that dimension and resist counter schematic information about themselves more strongly. So all that jargon, here's an example. Here's a schema that a lot of women, not you, you know, I'm, not sh I'm sure not the women in this room, but a lot of other women <laughs> will probably possess fat or thin. So women who are schematic, who are aschematic, don't really think much about their weight. They don't really care much. You know, they may say, yeah, I guess I'm a little, I feel a little fat right now, but you know, I don't care. Whereas women who are schematic um, for, say, fat, for, so for women for whom fat is a self-schema, um, are, uh, are quicker to make judgments about whether they feel fat or thin. They're more likely to make predictions about their weight in the future. So they're more likely to say, oh, it's going to be Christmas, I'm going to put on 10 pounds, it's going to be awful. Um, they're more likely to remember things that they did about their weight, such as going on diets or likely to remember um, how many miles they ran yesterday, that kind of thing. And they're more likely to ignore or reject informa information that tells them that they're not fat. So even if they fit in like size zero clothes, they're still going to be like, oh, I feel so fat. So they resist information that's opposite to how they see themselves. Because there's often so much going on around us, and because our brains are limited in how much it can deal with at any given time, Schemas act as filters to help us more efficiently parse out information that is most relevant and important to us. So they exert a top-down influence over our experiences. They affect how we perceive and pr process information, and in turn, they affect how we feel and how we behave. So even though schemas act as filters, like top-down filters, on how we experience the world, they're also influenced and reinforced by our experiences because, more often than not, we discount information that doesn't match with our existing schemas. And that's okay if schemas are relatively healthy and if a person has flexible enough schemas to sufficiently deal with a broad range of experiences. Things become problematic, however, 
when a person's schemas are rigid or if the person only has one or two core schemas that they constantly use. So, for example, it's okay if you think of yourself as a smart person and, see, and use that schema to assess information uh, around you and assess how people in interact with you and how you feel, your, would feel about yourself. That's okay. But if you don't have any other way of seeing yourself, then when it, you experience failure, for example, you may find that you cannot cope with that experience. You get stuck. And like you should think, you, 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 you're stuck in the moment. You can't get out of it. You can't see the world or make sense of your experience in, it, in any other way. So one of the problems is overly rigid schemas and a lack of, sort of, flexible, a lack of flexibility and a lack of a range of schemas to see the world. You only, if you're only able to filter information in one way, you can't deal with all that's going on around you. Psychologists have furthered their research on the self schemas to explore different aspects of the self. They've observed that people seem to have different selves. People have an actual self, the self that they actually are. People also seem to have ought selves, the self that they think they ought to be, as well as ideal selves, the self that they would ideally like to be. Ought selves and ideal selves are also separated into selves of their own versus others. So Simeon or whoever else, they, who I think they'd like for me to ideally be. And the same goes for the ought self. There are, there's who I think I ought to be, and there's who I think other people think I ought to be. Um, and the most interesting about these different selves, and the thing that has caught the attention of psychologists, is that discrepancies can be found between these different selves. And these dis discrepancies are generally problematic. So before we go on to problems associated with self-discrepancies, you may be asking, well, where do these ought and ideal selves come from? <coughs> the short answer is that they come from childhood experiences, which means parents. <laughs> ought and ideal, ideal selves develop out of fear. And, they, and ought and ideal schemas come to exist because children want to avoid negative outcomes and foster positive outcomes. We adopt ought selves and strive to be that way because we think that if we're like that, we can avoid criticism rejection and punishment. And this is, you know, in very young children. If, if they, they, they develop, they adapt these ought selves and they adapt sort of the selves that they think their parents want them to be so that they can avoid rejection, criticism, punishment, anything negative. And in the same vein, children adopt ideal selves and strive to be that way because they think that in doing so, they will receive more attention and love from their parents. So one is an avoidance of ought Ought selves are, uh, are related to avoiding punishment, and ideal selves are, are related to striving for more love, more, uh, more tension. And so these ought and ideal self structures develop during childhood, and they continue, they continue to influence the person's social relationships as they start to adopt ought and ideal selves from <coughs> significant others, such as spouses, in-laws, PhD advisors, and the like. We adopt these ought and ideal selves throughout our lives from people who are important and meaningful to us. So on to self-discrepancy research. We have found that discrepancies between actual and ideal selves are associated with feelings of de dejection, such as sadness, fear, and punishment, and disappointment. Sorry. So when there's a dis big discrepancy between a person's actual self and his or her own ideal self, they'll often feel personal failure, disappointment, and anger towards themselves. When there's a big discrepancy between their actual self and the, the ideal self that they think other people are sort of wanting them to be, they may experience severe rejection from other people and ex expect others to be disappointed towards them. So if you don't, if you're um, who you actually are is very different to who you would ideally like to be, you're likely to feel disappointed towards yourself. But if you're who you actually are is different to who you think other people would like for you to ideally be, then you're, more, you're likely to um, be afraid of sort of rejection from them. And discrepancies between actual selves and ought selves are associated with agitation-related emotions, such as shame, guilt, panic, fear, threat, and also with depression. Specifically, when a person's actual self is very different to, to who he thinks other people think he ought to be, so difference between actual and other people's ought, um, they may experience, you may, uh, he may experience fear and, threat of, and fear and threat because of expectations of being punished for not living up to standards that someone else is imposing. But 
when a person's actual self is very different to his own ought self, to the ought self that they've internalized, who they think they ought to be, they may feel self-contempt, worthlessness, irritation, and lack of energy. It's what you would feel if you felt that you have transgressed a standard or rule that you have personally accepted and feel as important. And this discrepancy, which I find really interesting, is the only discrepancy that is related to the feeling of guilt. So all the other discrepancies that we've just discussed are not related to guilt. This is the only one that just, um, predicts guilt. So all of these findings about the self and its problems are not new. In fact, the reformers were quite aware of these problems, and Thomas Cranmer is extremely sympathetic. He writes in the Book of Common Prayer, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not have done, and there's no help in us. So he's very aware that there are things that we ought to have done that we have left undone, and there are things that we ought not have done which we have done. And this, the predicament is that there's no help in us, just as self-discrepancy research shows. St. Paul, too, was aware and sympathetic to the problem of the divided self and the discrepancies between one's actual self and one's ought self. In Romans 7, he wrote, For what I do, his actual self, is not the good I want to do, his ought self. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. His actual self keeps on doing things he, doesn't, he thinks he ought not to be doing. So how does this relate to the Christian life? Well, basically, the law, the things that we're supposed to do, you know, the good life, the law represents our ought and our ideal self. And our inability or inability to satisfy the law, i.e., our sin, is our actual self. And, and if you don't have a handout, you should see it. I have a big uh-oh. <laughs> so, what solutions do we have? As we've discussed, a cornerstone of our cognitive functioning, our self esteemness can be destructive. So we, we parse out these information with our self schemas and then our experiences reinforce these self schemas. You know, we, we think we're fat, we use that self schema to assess the, the information, and then we experience ourselves to be fat and that reinforces it and so on. So that's, that can be destructive. In addition, the discrepancies between our actual self and our ought and ideal self are also problematic. So what can be done about this, given that there is, as Cranmer wrote, no health in us? As with most problems, half the battle is to be aware that there is a problem. One way to address the problem is first to acknowledge that our selves are divided and are in conflict with each other. Becoming aware of how our self-schemas are affecting what, it we, what we experience in the world can help us then recognize the limitations of those schemas. Becoming aware of the ought and ideal selves that we have adopted whether they're ought and ideals from our parents, from our spouses, from bosses, etc. Being aware of those and how they make us feel when there's this discrepancy. Being aware is half the battle. A second way to deal with the problem is to bridge the distance between who we actually are and who we ought or ideally would like to be. This is obviously easier said than done. We can make our actual selves more like our ought or ideal selves by way of, say, self-improvement which works about 5% of the time. Because the nature of oughts and ideals are that they're distant from us. They're not, the, the nature of them is that they're other. They're not us. And so the fact that they exist means they're not really easily bridged at all. And, you know, with anybody who is a perfectionist or who um, has body image issues will tell you they can run 16 miles a day and they'll still feel fat. You know, they can work. 16 hours a day and they'll feel sad if they haven't done enough. They can write the most perfect sermon or dissertation or whatever it is and it's still not good enough. That's, that's the nature of the divide itself, of the ideals and the actual. So you can, you can change who you actually are and make it more like your, actual, your ideal not self and that doesn't really work. Or you can be more realistic about the expectations that we have on ourselves on who we ought to or should ideally be. We can try to um, make our ideal selves and our ought selves more, we can try to lower those expectations. But again, that's difficult because they're so ingrained in who we are. They come so deeply from such 
because they develop in our childhood, and the fact that they exist means they've existed for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And to just change that is not easy. But, I mean, so, but, you know, that, that's one solution is to try to bridge them. Now, how, you know, that's still in question, but that's one possible solution. A third way to deal with this problem is to increase one's self-complexity. So inst instead of seeing yourself in just one or two sort of core ways, you try to see yourself through many different filters that don't overlap. So, for example, a, a, a person may have a primary schema of, say, smart or stupid. If he fails a test, this may be the only filter he will use to understand his experience. He may think, well, I failed the test, I'm stupid. Boom. But if this person has many different schemas, even if he fail, fails a test, he will still be able to see himself in ways other than just through the smart, stupid lens. So the same experience of failure will be much less emotionally charged for this person because that's not the only way they see themselves. They have other important, meaningful, and useful filters to use. So the third solution is, well, to, be, to try to be more complex, to see yourself in ways more than one, to identify yourself in ways more than one. So why does this matter? What is, why is this important to us in this conference? We know that reinforcing the ought and ideal self will lead to more negative emotions and possible psychological problems, such as chronic guilt, depression, anxiety, and poor coping. So what do we do if part of Christianity's core message is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? What, what do we do when one core part of Christianity and its message is that, well, there are oughts and ideals that we're supposed to strive towards? but our actual selves are very, very far away from those ideals and odds. You know what? And Kramer writes, there's no health in this. How, how can we restore health? If we're, in the, in, if we're in the business of helping people, of, if Christianity is the cure of souls, as Dr. Paulson said, how do we restore health? So I'm move on to grace and the self. First, I believe that grace allows us to be aware of the self that we are our actual, ideal, and ought self. And aware, like I said, awareness is half the battle. And in the general confession of the common prayer, we say, spare thou them, O God, who confess their faults. We confess, we acknowledge that who we are, who we actually are, is very different to who we ought and ideally should be. Grace allows self-discrepancies to exist and to be acknowledged honestly. And grace allows us to accept the self that we are. They, it allows all these different selves to exist. Secondly, I believe that grace bridges the gap between actual and ideal and ought self through the mechanism of acceptance. And theologically, this is explained through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He is the bridge. In Romans, Paul writes, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no negative consequence. So, be, so with ought selves, Ought selves develop because we're afraid of punishment. Well, ought selves can exist, but there's no punishment. Ideal selves exist because we want to be loved. Well, we're fully loved in Christ. And so ideal selves lose that power. So the, and, and so through Christ, it removes the sting or the consequences that are associated with these ought selves and ideal selves. <coughs> Third, I believe that grace gives us permission to develop other ways of seeing ourselves, other, other cognitive schemas or filters, so that we can better deal with the varieties of life experiences that we, say, we, we face. 2 Corinthians, says, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We can have new ways of seeing ourselves, new selves, can come through Christ, and these new selves help us be more flexible, be more um, accepting of the experiences that we have. So it's not just rigidly seeing ourselves as smart or not smart, bad or not bad, intelligent, not intelligent, hardworking, not hardworking. There's millions of ways we see ourselves, and Christ gives all these new ways of seeing ourselves that it's not restrictive, but freeing and, and uh, give life. So, to conclude, self-schemas affect how we see ourselves in the world. Rigid and simplistic schemas are problematic. 
Self-discrepancies are built into human experience. The discrepancies that are too big can be detrimental. <coughs> Grace allows us to acknowledge ourselves. It bridges self-discrepancies and gives hope for greater self-complexity. And uh, we're half hour in, so we have a half hour of, self of discussion about <laughs> what the hell what that means for all of us. <laughs> You know, thoughts, whatever, sharing about yourselves, feel free. Yes, Al. Um, I was wondering what the psychological world had to say about the ability to deal with the discrepancies between ourselves and uh, what we really are and who we think we're supposed to be. You know, the Pharisees and all the people who resisted Jesus couldn't see that they were hmm. sinners, that they needed to hear them. So instead of being justified by faith, you know, it was self justification. And I read reading a book that talked a lot about cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. and my understanding is that it's our way of justifying ourselves. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if you could talk about yeah. psychologically how we're able to deal or not deal mm -hmm. with who we really are. Let me go back to, Alex used a great term, cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is when you, um, here, here's an example. I, um, I feel very strongly that um, it's, I feel very strongly that it's very, it, it, it's very important to me to exercise a lot. I'm going back to this weight thing because I'm a girl and I think I'm all girls. Most girls don't, but I do. Um, so here, so, so we, will, we'll often, we, we have strong ideas about something. So for example, this is not really true of me because I don't really like running or exercising. Here's an example. I think it's very important to exercise. But for one reason or other, I don't do that thing. So I will then try to change how I think by saying, well, that's not, oh, uh, that's not really important to me. Or, or um, basically when there's a mismatch between what you think is important and your behavior, you will try to change one to, adopt, to match the other. So Alice's question seems to me, what, 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 what does psychology have to say about bridging the self-discrepancies? And, and you mentioned the Pharisees, and it seems like they're not actually, they think they've satisfied their actual and odd selves pretty well. Um, first of all, I think that they probably do have, they, the Pharisees probably actually have, feel like they've achieved their ideal and odd self. But I think they have a very limited of what the ideal and the odd are. And so, when, you know, when you think, oh, I, I, I really should, if, if your standards are low, basically I think their standards are low. If you think your standards are low, then you think you're likely to meet them, then you'll feel, you know, self, you'll feel pretty self-righteous. But the, the thing that Christianity gives us is our standards that are, we can't meet at all. And I think we're all in this room because we, we are very aware of that. And we, like Dr. Paulson said, talk to ourselves a lot about the fact that we can't meet these standards. Um, I think what, there are different ways of dealing with this, different thera ther therapeutic approaches will deal with it differently. You know, an analytic approach may go back to childhood and talk about relationship with parents and how those selves have, fostered, have been fostered. Um, mindfulness therapy may just, you know, have you sort of rest in the tension that exists in yourself and become mindful of it and accept it and so on. But I think the, the, one of the, like I said, with all these therapies, one of the key things they will do is first to be aware that they exist, that these selves exist. And, um, and the, for people who don't really see, have a whole lot of self-discrepancy, they probably don't go to church and they probably don't need a therapist. So, um, so psychology really won't really <laughs> uh, won't really be helpful to them. Um, yes? Yeah. Um, you're very articulate on the human condition. Everyone, everyone here human? I think we're all <laughs> So we all resonate. And I'm fascinated by your dissertation. Um, do you find in some of your research that people's anger at God is, God, why did you leave us in this untenable position? Yes. Yes. Uh, a lot of people are angry at God because they think God ought to be somebody else, some other way. God ought to have saved their mother when their mother was dying. God ought to have given them a job. God ought to have 
this and that, and and like the way the fact that people get angry at themselves for not matching their who who they actually are and who they ought to be. God, they get angry at God for not being who they think he ought he ought to be. And so, yeah, a lot of people are angry at God because God has failed them in some way, and they're unable to reconcile that experience of God failing them with their idea of who God is. And a lot of times these people have rigid views of God. Sort of, I don't want to say immature because that sounds condescending, but um, somehow their image of God has not, is not flexible or, or has not been developed enough to fully engage with their own human experiences. A failure of loss, but primary of loss. People usually get really angry at God when they lost something really important to them or someone really important to them. Yes? I'm curious. Um, what, what you would say or what advice you'd give to somebody to, because uh, it seems to me that the nature of, of the message of the gospel requires much repetition. Yes. For, for the type of person who's a perfectionist, who sort of has this mentality that, you know, once they hear something, I should sort of get it. There then becomes a tension between, like, the need for repetition of, of the forgiveness that you have and the unconditional love you have and the failure to remember it. Yeah. I think you're spot on in that repetition is one way in which we learn, and that's why if you, if you see a therapist, he'll probably say the same thing to you several times in your sessions, and he'll say it again and again and again. Um, and I think that's why we that's why we need churches that speak the message of grace again and again and again and again. Every week. Every every week. Every week. And that's why I think we need devotionals that have this message so we can read it every day. And uh, and I think that's why we need grace and personal relationships so that when you're done reading your devotional and five minutes later you forget it, maybe your husband will remind you. Unlikely. I wish it were no different. Yeah. I, w- I would say also... <coughs> Seems to me that what part of what you were saying is about the rigidity of uh, the self schemas, and that, that you actually you, you interpret the world according to these things. Almost you almost make the world in your own image. So, I mean, there's a degree to which you really want to tell you. There's all sorts of interesting research about people. You just don't see what's right in front of your face because it doesn't fit your schema, or you see things or remember things that didn't actually happen because it fits with your schema. So it's amazing how much we kind of construct because of our, our needs, our, our schemas, um, these things. And so the rigidity also means that we can hear it and we'll sort of slot it over here and we'll to make it something else so that we don't, it, so it doesn't sort of mess with us. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about the slot rattling. Oh, yeah, slot rattling. Um, remember, remember I said schemas are traits um, that are descriptive of us. And if you're schematic for a trait, it means you identify yourself on either end of that trait. So what will often happen is people think people will think that well if I am a perfectionist then the thing is to not be a perfectionist. So they, they move from when I'm perfectionist to not perfectionist. Mm-hmm. So of course they're going to have experience that sends them right back and they go back and forth and back and forth. Oh, I'm fat, I'm thin, I'm fat, I'm thin. I'm smart, I'm not smart, I'm smart, I'm not smart. Perfectionist, not perfectionist, so on. And all you do is you get more and more entrenched in this back and forth, back and forth. And this that trait doesn't change. Now what needs to happen in and what. Tra- therapy is trying to do is to give you a new construct, or help you develop new constructs that cut right through the slot that you've gotten yourself into. So instead of saying, instead of saying to a person who's a perfectionist, well, you're doing great. You don't need to be a perfectionist, which just keeps them in that same slot. (laughs) You uh, tell them something else about themselves that's true, that they may latch onto and identify with and say, you're you're a really funny person. You make other people laugh. Or something that's entirely different, that's orthogonal, not, par- you know, not the same, not in the same um, slot. So one, so one way is to break that. And I think, I think Christ gives us the freedom to really develop these new selves, you know, so that we're not just, um, we're not just the things that, we, not just the schemas that we have, but we really are able to, to because, because of Jesus, we're able to see ourselves in these new orthogonal ways that are not the same slot. I think Theologically, it's a great way of describing what the Holy Spirit does. Is, uh, the Holy Spirit comes at us 
orthogonally. <laughs> um, it in a way that we don't expect, in a blind spot, out of a, in some, or, or, or create something new where it never occurred to us to think there could be something new. That it often, it's often, it's my, my experience is that, that when things that God does in my life or in, in, in other people's lives that, that seem to actually take, that work, that are, are helpful, uh, tend to be kind of something you couldn't have thought of before. And it makes sense you couldn't have thought of it because you're stuck in your, your little slot. Yeah. Um, I like to think of the Holy Spirit as this totally other direction, and that's very freeing. Yeah. Yes, hi. How, how much aware, I mean, in the research business, how much awareness do people have of what their actual self is? And I, the reason I ask that question is because I think well, what this conference is, is about it, and what we, I think what we most of us try to be about is teaching the gospel to where mm. people actually are, who they actually are, but with the amount of denial that people live in, and ourselves included, you know, and you see, and you also see, I mean, you see many churches or motivational speakers or schools of thought that are constantly appealing to people's, uh, not only to their actual self, but and not only to their ideal self either, but sort of this weird in-between thing. Mm-hmm. They're like not quite in touch with who they actually are, and they, they think that they, you know, they don't think about bound rule, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, so you treat people as being sort of better than they are, and they get some traction, actually, because people want to believe that they're better than they are. But um, but then it's also not true. It's like it's a lie. It's the same because you're you're not dealing with reality. So I'm not I'm not sure. That, but what do you call that space between you know between your actual self as a sinner, as we understand sort of biblically, mm-hmm. but also the ideal or ought self? But that space that a lot you know, that a lot of Christians live in specifically, mm-hmm. where it's like um, they're not dealing with their actual self, but they're also sort of not their ideal self. They're sort of this in between. Mm-hmm. Does it actually create anxiety? Because a lot of times you see people sort of living victoriously, and they don't seem to have a lot of anxiety, at least mm-hmm. not outwardly. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're just really effectively denying the truth mm-hmm. or something about themselves. I, uh, I, I think that's very true. What you've just said is that most people are, hi- are really good at hiding what's really going on. Um, he, uh, psychologists in the humanist tradition are, are very sort of put a lot of premium on a, our, our awareness of who we really are. So George Kelly is uh, one of the theorists who developed this sort of self-schema, self-construct theory. He says, well, if you really want to know how a person is doing, just ask them. Like, they'll really tell you. But we also know from a lot of social cognition research is that <coughs> people aren't compl- at all aware of what's going on in themselves, and what they really see is just who they, what they want to see. And so... Um, but, but I do think that in terms of ministry and, and, and in, the w- in, the, in the way that this is most relevant to us is that we create a space where it's actually safe to explore the actual self that we don't like. It's easy to say, oh, I'm actually, you know, my actual self is that I'm really smart. Hurrah! You know, but it's also, you know, people don't do, oh, my actual self is that I, um, I am really struggling with, I don't know, whatever it is that you struggle with. Perfectionism, or my actual self is that is that I really hate my life. Like, it's easy to deal with your actual self when they're good, or or husband, or whatever, spouse, whatever. So I think the the, the role of, that the we what I think is important is that we need to create a space where people can start to be in touch with the actual self that they don't like instead of the ones the sides that they like instead of seeing how they're halfway like you said. Christians were in this limbo of actual self, a sinner, but ideal and ought, you know, this sanctified self, all that kind of stuff. Well, I think um, the, the, this, if, if, if Christianity is cure for the soul, then the soul needs to be, well, the soul that is sick is the one that needs to be cured. And so the, the space that we are to create is a safe space to explore the sick part of ourselves. Not just the whole, you know, we can talk, you know, great, you're doing great spiritually, hurrah, you know, all the power to you. I think that's really good, you know. I think sometimes we're really, it's really easy for us to focus just on the bad things that are happening, oh, you know, depravity. But I think a lot of times there's not a lot of space to do that either, or it's done in a kind of superficial way. And um, what do you think, Simeon? Um... I think that that's correct what you said. I think people. Um, uh, I, I find. I think it's helpful to not feel the need to sort of get hung up on showing somebody a specific. You know, if you're like, oh, this person really, this is their problem. 
If only they knew that I'm going to preach this way, I'm going to deal with this, I'm going to really focus on this, which is what I think is their problem. Sort of let their own problem come out. It will uh, come out. And it will come out if there's, if there's <coughs> space. And, and it's great if somebody doesn't think they have a problem in a certain way. If, if, it's, if it's actually healthy, that's great. And if it's not, the truth will come out, especially if there's kind of a safe space. So, so you should not spend your time sort of really trying to hammer home something that may not quite fit or isn't the right time or who knows what. Yeah. Um, I just had the image of Thomas's little scab that pus like half a teaspoon. Sorry. Our son had a whatever BCG shot or whatever and it's supposed to be against tuberculosis and it's been this huge like bulging scab thing on his arm for like three months and it looks really painful and one day and we just didn't know what to do with it. So one day after a bath it like oozed open and like a half a tea- tablespoon of pus came out. Oh, no. So gross. But I just had this image baby. <laughs> I just had this image of you know, whatever if it's there and if it's no good, then it'll come out. <laughs> especially, if you, especially if you pray for it, too. Yes. Uh, Bonnie, I'd like to try to bring uh, uh, Professor Paulson's message together with what you're saying. And how, how can we make some, how can we have a breakthrough when we're dealing with somebody who may be so odd self-driven that they may actually be, be pushing into a mental illness mm. position, mm. like borderline personality mm. disorder. Mm. Um, how can we um, try to attempt the um, reconciliation mm. of which uh, yeah. you spoke about yeah. with someone who's reasoning our sense of ration, ra- rational self is, is uh, way, way out there. Yeah, yeah. I would find a therapist that you trust and send that person to them. That's not possible, then what? <laughs> if that's not possible, then um, I would pray for them a lot. <laughs> I, the, the, the tricky thing with self-esteem is that it's so cyclical. I mean, the way they see the world is so... Hi- it's the, the top-down thing, the filter is so reinforced by experience, and experience is so affected by the filter that it's, it's something that needs a lot of time and, uh, and, and expertise to really break. Now, psychologically, it, you just need a good therapist who can cut through that, somebody who you can trust, that person trusts, and so on. But I think at the end of the day, if you don't have the therapist as a resource, you have the Holy Spirit as a resource, and I, I, I know that's what I really, that's what I would do, is I would pray for them a lot, and I would then be very mindful of any sort of instances of maybe self-harm or suicidal tendencies, anything like that, anything that looks um, like they're going to hurt themselves, you send them to someone who can help them, so, I don't know, taking the hospital or whatever, but... Yeah. I don't know. Um, stuff. Um, Kate, did you have a question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, should I go? Yeah, please. How do we get outside of ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I just, uh, I heard a, a sermon the other day about, actually, RJ was talking about how sometimes, really, all he wants to you get to that point where you're so sick of yourself that freedom is to get outside yourself. Yeah. To sort of bless itself forgetfulness. And, you know, you think about those times where you're sort of, I don't know, doing manual labor or, you know, mm-hmm. doing something so that's so outside that you, I, I just know personally, I have, there's been moments where I'm either helping someone or someone, helping someone move in New York is a great example, actually, <laughs> where you just have a task at hand. You have to get these boxes into this apartment, and everyone's got to help. It's a community thing, because they helped you, so you can't get out of it. <laughs> and so, but then all of a sudden, you know, you've forgotten about yourself, and you're like, oh, this is nice. I haven't, you know, been hating myself for an hour or something. So, I don't know, just question. I'm moving tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> 
described that getting out of yourself is, is moving outside of that rattling thing and doing and having something new. Um, and that's sort of what I would do is I would think about, well, what are ways in which I don't really think of, you know, what aspect of myself have I neglected? Because I'm so entrenched in these other core schemas or core constructs. Um, maybe you like to paint. Maybe you like to do manual labor. I don't know. I mean, we all, we all have selves that we neglect because we think some, are more, some aspects of ourselves are more important. Usually the selves that uh, give us, uh, make us feel better or the selves that um, help us earn love through other people, those take precedence over the selves that, are, you know, that don't do that. So I would invest time in, in doing the things or, or exploring the aspects of yourself that you've sort of neglected or forgotten. Um, and and make, the, make them back into your repertoire. Yeah. Move, them back, move those filters back into your repertoire. Lauren? Um, I, I love this conversation. This has been, been great, and I love psychology, so um, I'm just happy as a clam over here. The thing that I can't, I'm not, I don't think I'm reconciling very well with this conversation is the concept that we, he, he just he said that grace um, allows us to develop new schemes, mm -hmm. more healthy. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, and, and I know you're aware of this 100%, so I'm not saying anything new, is that pride, the most fundamental aspect of sin, mm -hmm. is so pervasive. Mm -hmm. How do I mean, I could sit here and think, okay, well, I'm a perfectionist. Uh, everyone who knows me knows that. How am I not going to then take that basic schema and that pride that's that fueling that and then apply it to a more healthy and just drag that right back in? And because my whole being is so tainted with sin that even if grace does give me something good, it falls into my human hands and I'm going to mold it and form it and I'm going to, you know, so even let's say moving, I, I get out of myself. As soon as I move, and I'm not with other people and drawn out of myself, I'm back in myself and I'm thinking, damn, I'm a good mover. It's almost as if, <coughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think how to say this, um, it's almost as if grace, I don't know, allows us to deal with the fact that even if a new schema comes in, we're going to take it, we're going to yeah. twist it and we're going to um, breathe, mm -hmm. and it's constantly maybe it's this, um, I'm not a linear person, I'm a circular, circular uh, however you want to say that word, circular, thinker person, and um, it's almost as if it's just continuing, like you get a schema, you drop the schema, you mm -hmm. get a schema, you drop it, you get it, you twist it, you drop it, mm -hmm. you know, so, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. I, I, I just don't, I guess, I guess I, I, I'm trying to clarify my own head, that I'm going to get to a place where I'm going to have like this whole basket basket of good schemas that aren't tainted by my human hands. Yeah. You give Um, I think uh, there's several things. One is we're never going to get there fully, of course, okay. at all, and that's by grace and a really in an ultimate and an eschatological sense. Is that this will only really, uh, you know, that one day the law will be gone, but it's not it's not yet. The second thing, though, is that there, there's a huge amount of power, um, and this is, I mean, it's the sort of the, the fundamental metaphor, I guess, it's not really a metaphor of, of psychology, is, is in, you can't do this yourself, but someone outside of you has a lot more power to be helpful in this regard. And of course, you're still going to take their stuff, but nevertheless, something that is outside of you that is beyond your control, whether it's a really good therapist or, I mean, church ideally might serve this function where you, you're, you're faced with something that is... That that, re that is resists at least initially your your thing, um, or uh, or if it's just you know the word of God coming from outside, but the sense of the other that that, that God is outside and comes to us, so, um, that <coughs> resists uh, and not absolutely not as a perfect thing, and uh, but there's great power in putting your hands in, the, in 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 someone else's power. Is there any help in the concept of? Or in the desire of, um, I find myself to have a lot of a lot of negative schemas on mm -hmm. that person that's just mm -hmm. built. I mean, they're built into me from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. My my ultimate desire is to like not have any. Like I don't even wanna. I don't wanna even deal with the concept that I could please God. I'd rather just say God is pleased because I am in Christ and He is pleased with Christ, and that's it. I don't wanna strive or think that. 
my natural reaction to seamless is to say, I don't even want a good one. Mm -hmm. I want none. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? I think I need nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think, first, I think that's a very self-aware thing to have realized. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people don't even get there. They're so... They're so proud of their schemas that they do have, or the, or so want to get rid of that they um they don't get to a point where they say, well, no scheme is actually better. Um, unfortunately, that's not really going to be like Simeon said, it's not really going to happen. But um, I think this new schema, old schema, new schema, becoming thwarted, dying, the the analogy of the death of the self is to me powerful there because. You can have you, you can resurrect old old schemas that are unhelpful, or you can have new schemas that turn bad and so on and so forth. But but I think that's life is that it does that. It's like and, and until we get until we get there, until Jesus comes again, we're gonna keep doing this. And um, but I but and that, and so it, it's a sobering thought. But I think that's why I'm so excited that He will come again. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's why we're here. That's why we believe what we believe. Oh God, so okay. uh, how do you get that attention? Yeah. Um, I guess I'm trying to, maybe this is uh, repetitive, um, and I'm just trying to deal with my own problems, but um, <laughs> like, I guess what really struck me about uh, Dr. Paulson's talk was this uh, idea that you can never, like, there's some limits, um, and sometimes you just have to sort of look onto like a, uh, the reconciliation that's going to occur in heaven. Um, so in terms of personal relationships, uh, if you don't ever get this affirmation um, from like somebody in your family or some of your friends, um, and your actual self is like so separated, I mean, you can have like a, a self, an ideal self that you know you might be going towards, and uh, you're sort of you know happy about the way that's happening, but the affirmation is never coming. So you're always going to have that longing for that affirmation. So how do you sort of deal with that? Um, I mean, do you just sort of depend on this repetition of grace, um, or do you try to, you know, sort of get the slot, uh, mm -hmm. somebody to come in, um, mm -hmm. or are we always going to have this longing that's never going to be um, fulfilled until, you know, the better country? Yeah. Do you have something to say about that? Um, <coughs> uh, I think it's very easy to talk about being aware of something. I think it's, uh, I know, I mean, the, the idea of being self-aware versus actually being self-aware, yeah, um, so to actually really acknowledge that there's an ideal self that, and an actual self and a discrepancy, to really, and just to let that exist, is actually a very powerful and very rare thing. Uh, it's not easy, you don't just sort of say it. Um, and, uh, and so there's something about um, actually accepting I have this longing and it's not fulfilled, and that's, that's the situation right now and just sitting with that and letting that be. It's actually hugely difficult uh, to do. Um, but I think there's a kind of power in that that can free you somewhat from, from, from that longing, when that actually happens. But it's, it's much easier said than done. So I think the acceptance of the discrepancy can, in a way, be a, lead to going for four milliseconds beyond uh, a discrepancy, um, but but normally we're fighting it. We're, our belonging is a fighting the situation that it actually is, rather than accepting it. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely difficult not to do that. Okay. Should we just go around this? this and see that that for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just have a question. Um, this is great. I love this. Um, in environments unlike this secular environments, which we all find ourselves in working in, or where, where folks are, may not even be disagree with what we feel to be hostile to us. How, do you, how does that impact yourself? How do you reconcile, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, and even in the therapy area, there's equal hostility. Mm -hmm. Towards that, and I love your your integration of psychology and Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, how do you 
How do I, how do I, how am I a psychologist and a Christian together at the same time? Yeah, and 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 how, how do you integrate, how do you uh, preach this gospel in a secular world, I guess? Um, Let me address the second part. How do I preach this gospel, gospel in a secular world? Well, I think we preach it and let those who have ears hear it. So not everybody's going to be ready to hear what we have to say. That's just, that's the way it is. Not everybody's going to have the ears to hear this message. Um, but we preach it nonetheless. We preach it as it is. I think we preach it as how it's changed our lives. Um, and then as with the how am I a Christian and a psychologist? Personally, and this is completely personal. There's no, you know, there's no academic anything in this. I believe that we are, we're the way we are because God has made us to be the way we are. We have a psychology. We have these internal selves. We have, um, we have feelings. Our feelings uh, motivate our behavior. All this thing. The way we are is the way we've been made. Now, we're also fallen, but I think that um, just the psychology can help help us understand how we can move away from suffering towards wholeness, I think that it, it must be the same. If, if there's any movement from suffering to wholeness, then it has to be what God offers as well. Like, I don't see the two as discrepant at all. And I know some people are very, you know, very hostile. People, a lot of psychologists are very hostile. I mean, Freud was extremely hostile. Um, but every... You know, Christians and psychologists alike will acknowledge that we have needs that are, and one of those needs, core needs of people is the need to be loved. And psychologists will offer different ways to, you know, to achieve that. You know, reconcile yourself with your parents, you know, so on and so forth. And so Christianity offers love through Christ. But um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think the way we're made is... I don't see a discrepancy between how who we are and um, how we can how, how our suffering can be alleviated. I don't see that psychological uh, di- uh, a discrepancy or any conflict between psychological solutions and spiritual solutions. I think they're both pointing at the same thing. Um, I don't know if that that, that might be all the time we have, I'm afraid. Um, but if you have more questions, ask uh, Bonnie. Uh, <laughs>